Good morning. Good to see you all today. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to 1 John, 1 John 5, 10 to 12. Last week I was preaching in Weston. I know that uh, Isaiah was in the passage prior here as I was in Weston. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, we're thankful for your inspired and errant word. We're thankful for truths like today that are rather familiar to us. We never want to tire of the gospel message, the implications of the gospel, why we believe the gospel, and our need to tell others of the gospel. Father, guide our time, we ask. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to begin with a few minutes of a video. It may seem a little bit long, but I think it's a pretty powerful message. This is Earth, obviously. All of humanity has been created on this amazing planet. No other planet in the universe can support life like Earth. We know it as gigantic because we are mere dots on its surface. This is Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. Next to it, the Earth is already looking pretty small. This is because Jupiter is over 11 times bigger than Earth. It is important to note we are talking about diameter here, not volume, because you can fit a lot more than 11 Earths inside Jupiter. But even that does not compare to our Sun. Our Sun is over 109 times bigger than the Earth. The Sun is absolutely perfect for our Earth. Any bigger, any smaller, and we would die. But it is hardly the biggest star. This is serious. It is over 150 times the size of Earth. If you look closely, you can still see the Earth in between Jupiter and the Sun. This giant is Arcturus. It is over 2,700 times the size of Earth. Now at this point, Jupiter is 10 pixels tall on your screen, and the Earth is 1 pixel. If you are on a phone, then it would be almost impossible to even see the Earth right now. This is Aldebaran. It is over 4,800 times the size of Earth, and dwarfs our Sun and even makes Arcturus look small. The star is 153 times brighter than our Sun, and would utterly blind us if it were as close to us as the Sun. Still nothing compared to the next guy. This blue supergiant is Regal, and it is over 8,600 times the size of Earth. This star is 47,000 times as luminous as our Sun. If I did a proportionate brightness from the Sun that you've seen to Regal on this video, it would blow out your screen. Speaking of the Sun, it is that tiny red dot below Aldebaran. This is Antares. I know, it is huge. That is because it is over 92,800 times the size of Earth. You most likely will not even be able to see the sun right now because it is only 4 pixels tall. This is Betelgeuse. He is over 96,800 times the size of Earth. You may think there isn't much of a difference between Antares and Betelgeuse, but we have risen to such massive scale here that it only looks that way because Betelgeuse is actually 32 million miles wider than Antares, and you could barely tell the difference. Next we have MUCV, which is over 137,000 times the size of Earth. The Sun is only 2 pixels tall at this point. Formerly known as the largest star, here we have Canis Majoris, which is over 160,000 times the size of Earth. Yup, that tiny blue dot on its middle left side is Sirius. The Sun is nearly impossible to see at this point. Keep in mind though, all the stars and planets you have seen so far are still on screen. 
This is NML Cygni. He is over 171,900 times the size of Earth. Once again, this star doesn't look all that much bigger than Canis Majoris. However, here we still have over a 94 million mile difference, amounting to almost 12,000 Earths wider. And now we have UI Scooty, which is over 160,000 times the size of Earth. Remember how big you thought Antares was? Well, this guy is twice as big as him. It is interesting to note that these stars do fluctuate in size, so sometimes they can be bigger or smaller than this, which leads us to the biggest star we have found, at its biggest radius, of course. WOH G64. It is over 281,200 times the size of Earth. With that kind of diameter, you can fit over 22 quadrillion, 192 trillion, 307 billion, 692 million, 307,692 Earths inside of it. This is massive. It is beyond massive. But yet, this is still nothing in comparison to the largest black hole we have seen. Introducing Ton 618 Black Hole which is 15,540,000 times the size of Earth. Yes, that purplish dot towards the bottom left is the gigantic WOH G64 that was so big we could barely describe it. Our universe is so big that we have to use a term known as light years to measure it. A light year is the amount of time it takes light to travel one year. Let's visualize what that would look like. This is a light year. It measures at just over 5.88 trillion miles and is 742,700,000 times the size of Earth. Scientists have tried to estimate the size of the universe, but there's no way to know how big it really is. Our galaxy though, which is one of an estimated 100 billion galaxies in the known universe, is an estimated 105,700 light years wide. This is simply mind-boggling. And this doesn't even touch the size of some of the bigger galaxies in our universe. Obviously, those are numbers that we really can't comprehend. But this is the point. You matter to the Lord. Out of all of that expanse, out of all of that creation, you, me, we are the object of God's rapt attention. We are the object of his son paying the penalty of sin, which is death, rising again, that we might spend eternity with God in heaven. Some estimate that in our universe, there are 10 octillion stars. That would be like a 10 with 28 zeros. Some say that's a little bit too big. There's one sextillion stars. That's a one with 21 zeros. How many planets are there? 10 septillion planets. That's like a 10 with 25 zeros. And yet this is the planet that God came in flesh to pay the penalty of our sin to buy us back. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling insignificant. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure if you are somebody who matters to anyone else. You matter to God. You greatly matter to God. For God so loved the world, that's us, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. I love the way John puts it today. 
It's in 1 John 5, 10 to 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God, Jesus, has a testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him, that is God, a liar, unthinkable, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, eternal life in heaven. Whoever does not have the Son does not have eternal life in heaven. I wanted to think to myself, who is this text for? And this is what I concluded. This text is for every person here today that is not by faith believed in Jesus Christ. I have personally prayed for several individuals that I know who regularly come that have not placed their faith in Christ. And then I've generically prayed for others who perhaps I don't know your faith situation, but you need to believe in Jesus. This text is for you. This text is for each person who may feel insignificant, underappreciated, uncared for. You are the object of God's rapt attention. Feel special, you are. This text is for you. This text is for each of us who have friends, relatives, co-workers who do not know Jesus Christ. But sometimes we feel a bit intimidated to share the gospel. We don't know the exact scriptures. We don't know the exact words to share. Today you can jot down some of those texts. This is for you. I think this text is for all of us. And this text believes, begins in verse 10 and in verse 13 with the word believe, pishuon. Pishuon is belief. We don't have a blind belief. We're not just believing in something because we have parents or grandparents who believe. There is reasons, there are reasons to believe in our faith. And so I want to start with three archaeological reasons why we have confidence in Jesus as Savior. There could have been a hundred examples, probably more than that. I'm settling on three. I think of King David. I've chosen King David because that's the lineage that Jesus comes from. Matthew 1 and Luke 3 tells us that Jesus is of the lineage of David. In fact, he's the greater David. But what you may not know is that David, who lived 3,000 years ago in 1000 BC, was at one time in many of our lives, he was at one time historically unknown. We know about him from the Old Testament. We know about him from the New Testament. But the truth is, we did not have archaeological evidence of David. That really shouldn't surprise us. A king 3,000 years ago from a small country is historically dubious. And the fact is, there are many kings from 3,000 years ago of much larger countries than Israel who we don't have historical evidence of. But that changed 
1993. Up in Dan, that's one of the northern tribes, it's called the Tel Dan Inscription. Now Dan, as, as I says, is up north. You know this from the Jordan. You've heard of the Jordan River. That literally means Dan descends. Out of Dan, this, this province, four springs emerge like the Habani. And these springs come down. They go about 55 miles north and south, about 150 miles of meandering. That's the Jordan River. Up there, they found the Dan inscription. It was in 1993. And it reads, Bayet David, House of David. What makes this inscription so remarkable is that they found it under ash. That's an archaeological dream. When you find it under ash of a destroyed area and you know exactly who destroyed it, the Assyrians, you know exactly when it was destroyed, 733 to 722 B.C., and you find the inscription under the layer of destruction ash, you know that the inscription at its earliest is 2,750 years old. And it clearly identifies Bayet David, House of David. So we have from antiquity evidence of David of whom Jesus comes from his lineage. That was 1993. Into the 2000s, we've actually found David's palace. So now we have lots of evidence of somebody who prior to 1993, we only knew of in scripture. That's one piece. The second piece comes from 2002. It's the James Ossuary. An ossuary is a box made out of bone that contains human bones very popular from 1 AD to 70 AD. If you were wealthy or you were a priest and you died, your bones got placed in an ossuary. There's no doubt that this ossuary is from the first century. Nobody has ever argued against that. But what's interesting is the inscription. It reads, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. It's a remarkable ossuary. So remarkable that in 2012, 12 scholars wrote a paper and argued that the inscription was false. That the inscription had been forged. What's interesting is none of the 12 scholars who wrote that paper have ever seen the ossuary. So it's a little bit hard for them to write a paper, but you know what resulted? This could only happen of things with Christ. What resulted was a trial. The antiquities dealer who owned the ossuary was actually put on trial and was charged with forgery. The court case lasted seven years, had 138 expert witnesses, had 400 presentations, 12,000 pages of literature, experts, paleographers from Israel and the United States and France all testified and the antiquities dealer was found not guilty. The ossuary and the inscription 
were thought by the court to be authentic. James, the head of the church, the son of Joseph, who was married to Mary, the father of Jesus. It isn't the Holy Grail. If it had been found to be a forgery, my faith would still be intact. But the truth is it wasn't found to be a forgery. Of course, there's still a lot of scholastic debate, but those paleographers who have studied it, no friends of Christianity, have declared it to be authentic. That's the second. Why we believe. Our belief is not just this emotion. It's grounded in intellect that finds its way in the heart. The third example, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the prefect or the governor who oversaw the trial of Jesus, Luke 22. What you may not know is that we didn't have a lot of evidence of his existence. We had some. Listen to historian Tacitus, who was also a Roman senator in the late first century. He said this. He made this statement. Jesus was executed by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, for crimes against the state, and a religious movement of his followers sprang up in his wake. So here we had a Roman senator and historian validating Jesus and Pontius Pilate, but we didn't have much else, not on Pontius Pilate. That all changed in 1961 in one of the largest excavations in all of Israel, Caesarea Maritima, which is the port city that Herod the Great built in 20 BC. It could hold 300 ships. They excavated not only the land, but in the sea. And when they excavated the port itself, they came up with the Pilate inscription, which says to the divine Augusta, calling the emperor divine. Okay, I don't much like that. The prefect or governor Pontius Pilate, and then it went on to talk. 1961, an inscription that nobody denies is authentic. So here are just three of hundreds of reasons why we believe, verse 10, verse 13, why we have confidence in what scripture says. Scripture is not just emotional belief, it is intellectually solidified by archaeology history over and over again. Jesus, by the way, was mentioned by most of the historians of his day, whether it be Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, Josephus, Lunian, the Babylonian Talmud, etc. They all knew of the historical Jesus. So when the text says, believe, it is more than an emotion. It is an intellectual belief. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life, life in heaven. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, fully God, took on human flesh, paid the penalty of our sin. We call this the doctrine of justification to be declared righteous by faith in Christ. Let me just look at the doctrine of justification from Paul's Romans. Let me just look at it real quickly. Verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. You remember what John said in 1 John, if we claim that we have no sin, we are liars and the truth is not in us. 
Paul also said in verse 23 that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. In addition to that, verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We're not justified by what we do. So how are we justified? Well, let me read on verses 24 and 25. We are justified by his grace as a gift, what we do not deserve. Through the redemption, that's a word that means bought back from slavery. What are we slaves to? We're slaves to sin. By birth, by action, we're slaves to sin. We who have believed in Christ are bought back, we're redeemed. How? In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. A propitiation means that God is outraged by our sin. He is angry. He has wrath towards sin. But he poured that wrath out on his willing son on the cross who took on our sin, that if by faith we believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. So the propitiation is covered. What's the next three words? By his blood, to be received by faith, we believe in Christ. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. You and I have nothing to boast about. If we are saved, it's through faith in what Jesus has done for us. Let me look at chapter five, just three verses, one and two, and then verse eight. Therefore, since we have been justified, that is declared righteous, how by faith we have peace with God through, not our efforts, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse eight, God shows his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. Or as John puts it, verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has a testimony on himself. Verse 12, whoever has the son is life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. When John's talking about life, he's talking about eternal life in heaven. All of us are eternal beings. We have a moment in which we were created. God is an infinite being. He was never created. We are eternal beings. We have a moment in which we are created, but we will not have an ending. We will spend eternity with God in heaven by faith in Christ, or we will spend eternity separated from God in hell. We are all eternal beings. That's how God created us. And verse 11 says that out of love for us, he offers salvation in God, in his son. Salvation never comes by what you and I do. Never. Remember what verse 20 of chapter 3 said in Romans, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified, declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So why did God give us the law? Galatians tells us in 2.24 that God gave us the law as a tutor. It's actually given to us that I might know I'm a violator 
of God's perfect standard. It's a ruler of which I do not measure up. Now, I'm thankful that I'm no longer under the minutia of the Old Testament law. The laws from Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those last four books, uh, four or the first five, those I'm no longer under because in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus fulfilled the law for us. But that doesn't mean we're lawless, antinomious. No, it means that that minutia we're no longer under, but God has given us many other laws in the New Testament that we are still bound by. In fact, some of those laws in the New Testament are repeats of the minutia of the Old Testament. Those I'm still bound by, like Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, which we'll look for in the fall. Those are the Ten Commandments. Those I am still bound by, and so are you. But yet we continue to be violators of God's law. And the result is if we do not believe in Christ, we do not receive Christ, then we will be separated from God in a crisis eternity forever. That should break our hearts. It should break our hearts. Orthodox Christianity cannot believe in something called annihilationism. That if I don't make heaven, God will just destroy me. That's not what the Bible says. It says that we are eternal beings. Orthodox Christianity cannot believe in universalism, that all are saved, just believe something, and that's good enough. Orthodox Christianity really cannot believe that once I leave this earth, if I don't know Christ, he's going to give me another opportunity. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, the judgment. It doesn't say it is appointed for man to die once, and then I hope that I get another opportunity to receive Christ. It says after that, the implication is immediately after that comes the judgment. There are no second chances. If somebody does not know Christ, they'll spend a crisis eternity from God in a literal hell. Let me read this from Matthew 25, 46. And these unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let me read it from Revelation 5, um, verse, it should be Revelation 20. I don't have the right one marked. Revelation 20, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible overtly teaches a literal separation from God in a place of suffering without the presence of God. That should weigh heavily on my heart. That should cause me to pray for those who do not know Christ. It should cause me to want to share the gospel with those who do not know Christ. It should cause me to want to invite people who don't know Christ to church where they'll hear the gospel or to take somebody out to coffee and, and share with them salvation. It should cause me to love local and world missions and to be active in both. A literal heaven should bring unbounded joy and a literal hell should cause me to move forward in my walk with the Lord telling others about Jesus. 
Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14.6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, he said, for by grace, what we don't deserve, for by grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. So none of us, should boast. This is the gospel message. The gospel is given to all. It's extended to all. 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But the gospel is only effectual for those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now this morning, you could push back, I suppose. And you could say, well, all right, you're talking about our choice, but what about divine election? How does that play in? And that's a great mystery. The Bible says very clearly in Ephesians 1 that before the foundation of the world, God chose us. Romans says very clearly he didn't choose us based on anything we would do. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. Acts says, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And so the Bible says categorically that God chose us. And the Bible says categorically, if we do not volitionally choose God, we will be rightly held guilty for that choice or lack thereof. And how do you reconcile those? I don't know. If you don't have a, theological category for mystery in your theological toolbox, you will always have problems with scripture. Scripture has mystery. And why wouldn't it? If God is so much greater than we are, why would our puny minds be able to comprehend everything? How do we explain the Trinity? Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet God is simultaneously Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's not a ship-shaping God. Sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Holy Spirit. He is always simultaneously three, and he's always simultaneously one. That doesn't work for me. Jesus is fully God, takes on Humanity, the incarnation, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, is one too many fullies. It doesn't work for my puny mind. And so I can't solve the divine election and human responsibility. Scripture categorically teaches both. But this morning, we're going to talk about human responsibility. It is our responsibility. It is commanded by Scripture that you and I believe in Jesus Christ. And if we don't, we are volitionally rightly held accountable to God and separated from God for all eternity. The exclusive nature of the gospel is that salvation is in no one else 
except faith in Jesus Christ. But there's also an inclusive aspect of the gospel and it's mind blowing. Let me read to us out of Revelation 5, 9. For you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue or language and people and nation. That word nation is ethnos. It really doesn't refer to countries. We don't even agree on how many countries there are. I could go to several websites and tell you that there are 202 countries. I can go to some that say 201 and some that go to 203 because we don't even agree on certain areas whether they belong to one country or they're independent. But that's not what ethnos means. Nation, this word means people group. It refers to those who have a distinct language or a distinct culture or a geography that offsets it from others. We don't even agree on how many of those there are. On the low end, there are 11,000 people groups. The Joshua Project, which is kind of the standard, says 24,000 people groups in the world. And Jesus tells us that his blood will claim believers from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That is the most inclusive thing that is on the face of this earth. We can't agree on anything. Even as a nation, we can't agree on anything, right? But the Bible is so inclusive that if there's 24,000 people groups, Jesus has claimed some before he returns from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. That's the inclusive aspect of the gospel and it should cause us joy. Don't leave here today without knowing Jesus. If you don't know Jesus after the service, I'm about to walk out, I'm gonna go to Merrill, but there'll be other staff here, there'll be other believers here. Don't leave today without believing in Jesus. He's offering you salvation. You are the object of his rapt attention. And for those of us who already know Christ, think of 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors. We're his representatives. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. It becomes our joy our joy to tell others about Jesus, knowing that some are going to respond because Jesus has claimed for himself people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we have the opportunity to tell others about Jesus. You're the object of his rapt attention. Feel special. Jesus died for you, but it's only effectual if you I, we believe in Christ, believe in him today as Savior and Lord. And may we tell others about Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, uh, thank you for the gospel, that it doesn't depend on us, what a failure that would be. We would never measure up to your holy standards. And yet your holy son, died as a payment of our sin, offering salvation. What a joy, what a privilege. And if there's somebody here today that does not know Jesus, 
By faith, may they believe in Christ. And we who know Jesus, may we share the gospel with others. And we, we all realize how special we are in light of all that you have created. Your son died for us, rose for us, offers salvation to us. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.